Second Kings chapter 5, verses 15 through 26 is our text. Second Kings chapter 5, we begin at verse 15. When he, that is, when Naaman returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Nathan said, If not, Please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there and leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean, by not receiving from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? He said, All is well. My master sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. And Naaman said, Be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house and sent the men away, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Then he said to him, Did did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper, as white as snow. The reading of Holy Scripture, be seated please and let's pray.
Our Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your holy word. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The sovereignty of God over the whole world is announced at the beginning of 2 Kings 5, where we're told in verse 1 that Syria's military success comes through Naaman as a gift from Jehovah. By him, Jehovah had given victory to Aram. Jehovah is sovereign, we said, uh, last Lord's Day, over the big things. And then in verse 2, we, uh, we have the other side of the, of the coin. Jehovah is sovereign, not only in the big events, but in the small circumstances, in one single young life. The narrator draws a contrast between Naaman as a great man, verse 1, and a little girl, and verse 2. The whole account depends on this little girl and her providential servitude in Syria. In God's providence, her captivity captivity is the means by which Naaman is made aware of Jehovah's prophet in Samaria. Both world affairs and personal circumstances are under Jehovah's control. Another contrast is drawn between the believing girl here in verses 2 and 3 and Israel's frightened king in verse 7. Apparently, she was from a godly home, from a remnant family in the northern kingdom of Israel, for she knew of Elijah and she had faith that God's power operated through the prophet. And so, this girl is believing, but the king is faithless. Uh, He doesn't even seek out uh, the prophet. But instead, uh, Elijah, Elisha takes initiative with the king, verse 8. And once that happens, uh, Naaman shows up at his doorstep uh, and is humbled. Uh, His expectations of a magic cure are reversed, and ultimately his objections to uh, the simplicity and the narrowness of Jehovah's ways are washed away with his leprosy in the Jordan River. In our text this evening, in verses 15 to 27, the narrator presents a third contrast. Here we find contrasting spiritual realities. The contrasting spiritual realities of Naaman and Gehazi, Elisha's servant. In our text, the disease of leprosy is symbolic of the spiritual truths and conditions that concern the soul. That's the way it is uh, in uh, the Gospels, you will remember. There's so many healings that Jesus did that uh, we, we, underst- we come to understand 
uh, were ultimately healings of the soul. And that's the case uh, with Naaman. And just as Naaman's soul was healed along with his leprosy, so we see uh, that Gehazi's soul uh, winds up in a spiritual spiral, uh, a, a downfall. And so, we see two things. In the first place, Naaman's remarkable transformation, and secondly, Gehazi's alarming downfall. In the first place, then, Naaman's remarkable transformation. That transformation is evident in the first place by a changed disposition. Five times in verses 15 through 18, while speaking to Elisha, Naaman calls himself your servant. That's a, uh, that's a, a complete reversal. That's a, a tremendous shift from the hostile ranting of verses 11 and, and 12. Elisha had sent a messenger uh, saying, go and wash in uh, the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and, and you will be clean. Verse 10 and verse 11, Naaman was furious. Uh, and then... Um, he goes away in a rage because uh, he can't understand why it has to be an Israeli river. Why can't it be one of the rivers uh, in Damascus that, uh, that he can be clean? And so he turns and he goes away in a rage in uh, verse 12. His transformation is obvious second from his spiritual commitment expressed in uh, verse 17. Please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he offer sacrifice to other gods, but to Jehovah. The mention of soil in connection with sacrifices suggests that he wants to worship God. He wants us to worship this, this worship uh, that he is uh, that he has said, that he is committed to, to, to do now, uh, to take place at an altar built on this soil that he takes back with him to Syria. And Naaman's transformation is clear third from his spiritual sensitivity in verse 18. In this matter... May the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Ramon to, bow, to worship there and he leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, Jehovah, pardon your servant in this matter. Naaman says that as a part of his job description, he has to escort the king when the latter goes in to worship the Aramean god, Ramon. And Naaman is saying here that he himself will not be worshiping Ramon when, when he goes through this formality, but that it's part of his job 
and it can't be avoided. He's committed himself to worshiping Jehovah and no other gods. Verse 17 says, But for this irregularity, Naaman is pleading for pardon in advance. Now, these requests in verses 17 and 18 do pose something of a challenge for interpretation. One problem has to do with the request for Israelite soil. Wasn't this a superstitious belief that that was out of keeping with uh, his newfound faith, someone might object. Well, perhaps it was, but we ought to make allowance for the fact that this was a new convert. We shouldn't expect him at this point to have a a full and and mature understanding of the things of God. Joseph Hall wrote, it's not for us to expect a full stature in the cradle of conversion. As nature, so grace, grace rises by many degrees to perfection. Leprosy was in name and cured at once, not corruption. That's well put. A second problem has to do with his request for Jehovah's pardon for bowing in the house of Ramon. There there seems to be a glaring contradiction here. With one breath, Naaman insists that he'll no longer serve idols, verse 17, but in the next breath, he anticipates going into the house of an idol uh, in verse 18. This may seem to be grounds for accusing Naaman of incomplete commitment to Jehovah. Uh, A warning, as some have put it, uh, about the peril of small compromises in the faith. But the fact is that Elisha sent Name it away in peace. Doesn't say anything about the dirt. Doesn't say anything about Israeli dirt. He says nothing about his request to be pardoned for going with his boss into the house of Ramon. Note. That this, while this glaring, uh, what what may be grounds for uh, a, a incomplete uh, commitment, may be grounds uh, for the charge by some of uh, compromises. Uh, note that. Elisha simply did not seem to be concerned about this, maybe because Naaman was miles ahead of the majority of the nation of Israel. Note 
positively what verse 18 shows. It shows a sensitive conscience. Here's a man who senses a conflict between an exclusive allegiance to Jehovah and the expectations of his workplace, and it bothers him. Would that the Israelites visiting the golden calves at Bethel and Dan or worshiping Baal were bothered like this. Would that they could have an uneasy conscience like this Gentile. Would that apparent inconsistencies drove them to seek pardon from Jehovah. The fact is, Naaman's faith outstrips by far anything to be found at this time in syncretistic Israel. This Aramean implicitly condemns Israel. He receives the blessings of Israel's God while Israel is passed by. That's what Jesus said. Luke, 20, Luke 4, 27 records, and it almost got him killed. There were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And this sent the people of the synagogue in Nazareth into a rage. They weren't merely upset because Jesus said that God showed mercy to a Gentile, but because Jesus said that God cleansed Naaman while bypassing Israel. Israelite lepers stayed lepers. God cleansed a pagan leper. God turned away from Israel while extending grace to Naaman. Verses 15 to 19 emphasize how Jehovah transformed this Gentile named Naaman. God's grace didn't only heal him of his leprosy. It made him a faithful fearful worshiper of Jehovah. We have here an Old Testament version of 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. He turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Naaman not only lost his leprosy that day at the Jordan, he lost his paganism as well. The high point of this narrative isn't Naaman's healing. In verse 14, but his personal encounter with Elisha in verses 15 through 19. And his gracious transformation leaves no room for doubt. Elisha's servant is the one to be concerned about. And that brings us secondly then to Gehazi's alarming downfall. 
Now, in order to understand Gehazi's actions, we need to go back to Naaman's post-Jordan interchange with Elisha. Why was, so, why was Elisha so adamant about refusing Naaman's gift? No, notice his oath here in verse 16. As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Doubtless, Elisha was so adamant because he wanted to impress upon Naaman that God is the God of grace who cannot be bribed, cannot be manipulated like the pagans do their gods. Jehovah doesn't constantly have his hand out looking for a payoff. He's simply a good God who gives good gifts. And that puts Gehazi's offense in context. Of course, there, there were other offenses here. There are multiple offenses, compounded offenses here in verses 20 to 24. He broke the third commandment. Verse 20, he was apparently there to hear uh, Naaman's gift offer and Elisha's resolute refusal by oath, as the Lord lives, I will take nothing. So Gehazi swears by Jehovah's name himself, as the Lord lives, I will run after, after him and I'll take something. Furthermore, his barefaced lie in verse 22 is a, a violation of the ninth commandment, and the covetousness that drove him from the start violates the tenth commandment. But Gehazi's greatest offense was his distorting the truth about Jehovah. He destroyed in an instant what Elisha was seeking to teach Naaman. In verse 16, his lie about the two unexpected guests twists not only the truth, but the truth about God by obscuring God's free grace. His greed implies that the wealth that Naaman brought with him from Syria could somehow contribute to his gracious transformation. This explains why Gehazi's punishment is so severe in verse 27, why God deals so harshly with him. It was because Gehazi was undoing what God had done. God wanted Naaman to know his free grace, but Gehazi was trying to put a price on God's goodness. The God of Israel didn't accept bribes. He wouldn't be manipulated by money or make room for human pride. His grace was free. Gehazi was implying otherwise, and it would come at great cost to him. And since God doesn't change, punishment for distorting 
The gospel of grace is in full force in the New Testament, which Paul makes clear in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be anathema, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, he is to be accursed. The battle that Paul was fighting in Galatians was a a battle for the gospel of grace. There were those implying that grace wasn't enough, that Jesus' death alone was insufficient to supply for the salvation of those who who believed in him. So Jesus had to be supplemented. One had to tack something on to God's grace in Christ. And so in Galatia, there was this Jesus plus movement, Jesus plus circumcision, or Jesus plus my good works. In our country today, we have a whole denomination that teaches that baptism is essential to salvation, Jesus plus baptism. Some flat out reject grace. The end of a Masonic Funeral prayer asks that after our departure, we may be received into thine everlasting kingdom to enjoy in union with the souls of departed friends the just reward of a pious and virtuous life. Others appear to esteem Christ's work and declare it inadequate in the same breath. A Mormon publication asserts, the atonement of Jesus Christ doesn't answer for our individual personal sins, which are forgiven only on the condition of repentance, baptism, and a good life by each of us. Christ made atonement, the statement affirms, but it needs to be supplemented. Jesus plus, and the plus obscures Jesus. And even the evangelical church can fall into this grace obscuring trap. Movements arise within or alongside the church that prove to be of help, either in understanding or living the gospel. But at times, Christians can get so caught up in this or that movement that you have to wonder if it becomes Christ's alter ego to them. These can be good and helpful groups providing useful ministries. But we can make them such icons or elevate them to such a place that we put them, we wind up putting them in the Jesus plus mode. Jesus plus promise keepers. Jesus plus focus on the family. 
Jesus plus Bill Gothard, to name a few, from of the not-too-distant past. Dare we admit it, Jesus plus Reformed theology. Beware of the human heart's penchant for supplementing Jesus, obscuring divine grace is dangerous. Just ask Gehazi, or better yet, the Apostle Paul. That's because free, transforming grace is so wonderfully liberating and beautiful and isn't to be diminished in any way, shape, or form. Here, Paul, in Titus 3, verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Hear him again in that familiar verse, uh, these familiar verses in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The true gospel removes all other grounds of hope from seeking hearts, teaching them to look to Christ and Christ alone, freely offered to sinners, and say, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I, I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. We bless your name, O Lord our God, for transforming grace. We bless your name for each soul here who has experienced that transforming grace. Grace that is wondrous, liberating, beautiful. We thank you, O Lord for the free offer of the gospel. We thank you that you've given us grace, or that you've transformed us, that you've changed our hearts, you've given us a different attitude toward the gospel, that you've enlightened our minds in the knowledge of Christ, that you've given us spiritual sensitivities, that you are ridding us of our sins. And we pray, O oh Father, that you continue to do so. And we ask, O oh God, that you preserve us and guard us from spiritual downfall. That you'd keep us from idolizing 
those things that obscure the free grace of the gospel. Forbid it, Lord, that we should embrace anything uh, that would detract from the free grace that you offer to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Forbid us, O Lord, that we would ever supplement Jesus with anything else. Guard our hearts, O Lord. Open us to a greater understanding of your gracious nature and the free and full gift that you've given us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Cause us more and more to fall in love with him. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.